Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm Brian. I'm Carrie. I'm Isaac. And today we're joined by L. Finke. L, would you like to introduce yourself? I would. Thank you, Brian. Hello, everybody. My name is Lee Finke, although I go by L in most places. I am an author and filmmaker from St. Paul, Minnesota. I recently had two books come out in October. No, that's wrong. August. Time in the pandemic is meaningless. Queerfully and Wonderfully Made, and a hand, which is a handbook for LGBTQ teens in Christian communities, and then Welcoming and Affirming, which kind of goes along with it, which is for adults who work with those teens. And yeah, I made a couple of documentaries kind of around that space as well. One is on racism in the church. The other is on sexual shame in the church. And I'm happy to be joining you all today. And you're, one of the things that I love, uh, I don't want to steal your thunder, but uh, one of the uh, comments, I think it was an Amazon comment on one of the films, uh, resulted in your, in your production company. Do you want to tell that story real quickly? Because I, I think it's amazing. Yeah, so I uh, recently created my own film production company called Totally Gay Productions, uh, which is the result of a an Amazon.com review of a documentary that I wrote and produced called Ending the Silence, Confronting Sexual Shame in the Church. And this individual's comment indicated that it was a totally gay production by gays. It was The whole thing was like by gays, for gays, no straights. It's a totally gay production. And I just thought it was the perfect, uh, like, that's what I want to make. I want to make it totally gay stuff with that's not with or for straights. Through the <laughs> Hell straight. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Carries in. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I just love that because it's like the ultimate, like it, it's like for on the one side, Amazon comments uh, are remain undefeated. Uh, and on the other side, it's like the biggest cell phone of all time. It's like, okay, cool, bro. Uh, awesome. Well, yeah. I, and so one of the reasons I wanted to have you come on is, is I think queerfully and wonderfully made, you know, it's, it's, I think it's just like this really wonderful, no pun intended, book uh, that is so broad in, in appeal and need. Like, it's not just for people that are, you know, inside churches who maybe aren't affirming, but also like for my daughter who goes to a pretty, you know, pretty open and affirming church with a, a uh, lesbian pastor. Um, and, you know, she gets a lot out of this, too. So I, I guess I'd love to hear you kind of talk just like what's the impetus behind this book or these two books and like why, you know, why are they needed in church culture right now? I think we know the answer to that one, but I'd, I'd love to hear you speak on that. Sure. Yeah. So the I mean, the seed of the idea was creating something for uh, myself um, when I was 15 years old. Right. When I was 15 years old, I almost came out. I did not. I became instead. I became an evangelical Christian, right? So it was like <laughs> right. turn, you know, a sharp turn to, to, to avoid coming out. And I didn't come out for another 20 years. And I was very close to doing it. And I basically, that was the mid nineties. And I, I wanted to write a book that somebody could have given me that was like, basically said, you're okay. You can keep moving forward towards becoming yourself. Like this is an acceptable thing in the world for you to do. And there just wasn't anything like that where I was. There may have been those things elsewhere, but in suburban Minnesota, there certainly was not in 1995. So that was kind of like why I wanted to make this 
book. And then the way that it kind of came together, it ended up being this, like, what's the most direct way to get to the issues that people are thinking about? Kids, teens, right? I think of it as like kind of 12 to 18, although it's for any age, honestly. But, you know, it's just like asking questions that they're going to be running in their head, right? Like, is this okay? Am I okay? Am I going to hell? Like, am I going to get bullied? Like, there's this sort of spiral of questions you have when you think about which like the first third of the book is about like getting folks to the point of thinking about coming out. We just, I just wanted to answer those questions, right? I can't sit down with every single queer young person, especially queer young people in churches who are nervous. And so this is, that's how the book came about. Yeah. And there's one of the things that I love too, is it's not, it's, it's stuff like that. That's very real. And I think you would see in a lot of different books, but then there's also the chapter um, or section help. I'm a horny queer teenager. And so I I think it's, I think it's very real and it's very honest. And I think that that's, that's rare coming out, especially coming out of like a religious publishing house, which this kind of came out of, or, or a one-time religious publishing house. I don't know if they still claim that, but yeah, I mean, I I I think that's a, a kudos to that. Yeah, I appreciate that. And and I mean, that was equally important to me, right? Like, how do queer people have sex is one of the questions, right? Because if you're a kid in America, you're not learning anything about sex in school, let alone if you're in any non-hetsis relationship. You know, you might just think to yourself, like, I literally don't know what to do. You want to hear an embarrassing story about my youth? (laughs) Yeah. So when I was in youth group, when I was in my evangelical youth group, um, my youth director was like, I don't remember how it came up. I think I was listening to a lot of Queen at the time. (laughs) (laughs) But my my youth director was like, like just offhandedly mentioned that Freddie Mercury died of AIDS, which I knew was an STD. I did not know anything about AIDS except that it was an STD because I was in eighth grade in suburban Texas my youth director brought up Freddie Mercury dying of AIDS, which I had no idea what that was, except that it was an STD. And I also knew that Freddie Mercury was gay. And so I was like, he can't have died of AIDS. He was gay. (laughs) Because I, in my innocence, was like, if you're gay, you can't have sex. That's just like not how it works. And that's what eighth grade Carrie thought. And now look at me. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that story is in both embarrassing, as you as you admit, but also like probably still the case, right? There are still young people who are like that level of like not knowing what it means to be queer or to be gay or whatever, and it's like shocking to me, right? And that, but it's also not surprising to me. And I wanted the book to be able to, like, the last question in the book is like about going into sex shops. Right. Like it's about pushing people forward and just like it says in there. Right. Like you're not probably not going to do this, but I just want you to know these places exist. There's a world, you know, there's a, a world where LGBTQ people interact with each other outside of the space. I was thinking of Smith and Kitten, if you're from the Twin Cities. Right. But it's like there's classes and there's like everything that you could possibly need one day. So, you know, I just. Yeah, I just want to hold everyone's hand, get them forward, but I can't do that. So 
<laughs> Shout out to Smitten Kitten. Uh, looking for any kind of uh, sponsorship, we're, we're here for you, uh, Smitten Kitten. <laughs> I mean, Smitten Kitten is a, an amazing shop. Amazing. In the Twin City, right? It's a As we get shop. closer to Valentine's, yeah. Smitten Kitten is <laughs> partnering with until we get canceled to make sure that you light up your lover's life. It's just, I mean, uh, I'm quitting. I mean, I know this is, this is also like why I want this in the book, right? Because right. this is both a very humorous and expected joke, but it's also like you can go there and get classes on anything, yep. right? Like you can learn, you could walk into that shop and ask a question totally without self-consciousness. It's not like a young person who's like trying to figure out how a binder works is going to ask a question to the, the professionals at Smitten Kitten that shocks them, right. right? Like, that's the where you go when you're like, I don't know how to talk. How is this supposed to work, you know? There are real places for that. Well, and I think that this gets to one of the, I think, the other side of your work that I'd love to hear you talk about. Elle, it's just like, okay, so here we are saying to LGBT Christian teens you're like welcome in these spaces or affirming churches are open to that. And then what they're walking into is it into a culture where there are a huge number of adults who, you know, even though their sexuality has never been like condemned by the church has all have also basically never figured out what it means to have a sexual relationship that they feel is a part of their faith. And so I'd love to hear you talk about the, documentary you did on sexual shame in the church. And, and because I think that that's another part of like considering where safe space truly exists. If it's, you know, if um, you're an LGBT person, like walking into a church with a partner where nobody is ready to see any sort of public display of affection because they all think sex is like something to be completely ignored or whatever, then, then suddenly I don't know how how safe can that space really be, even though it may be quote unquote reconciling or whatever else. If, if sexuality is never something that's been present within the sanctuary, then you're back at square one. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And and I think it's super, you know, I mean, this is in the book too, and the documentary deals with this directly, but this notion that, you know, and I had to make choices about what to put in this book. Like I can't get it to every Christian kid. And there are that scale of, what that means, you know, is beyond the ability to discuss here. But there is, of course, you know, shame, just shame, 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 shame everywhere when it comes to sex in churches. And Brian, to the point you opened this podcast with, like, you might go to a super progressive liberal church in which the pastors are LGBTQ folks in which, you know, who knows who's teaching your Sunday school? Who knows what interaction you happen to hear behind you in the pews? Like, it only takes a couple of people to make a progressive church feel unsafe, but it also only takes a couple of affirming people to make a, you know, evangelically conservative church feel like not a threat. So there, I mean, there is this whole space here where you have to, work, you have to be able to operate. But I think, you know, getting the message to young people about what it means to exist in, I mean, I don't know where you, I mean, I, I'm coming here just to be clear. Like, I think church is largely a negative impact on the world and it's young people. Uh, I think there are good churches, but I think overall in, the, in this country, it's not good for culture. Uh, please don't play this for my boss. <laughs> but I do think like, you know, we have to, we have to work with 
people who live in their environments, right? And, and their environments exist in church or whether it's in school or whatever place they are. If they're encountering sexual shame, which in America they are because it's our raison d'etre, then they are having to overcome something that we need, you know, and we need to be there for them. I, <laughs> there's a lot to sort of unpack there. I mean, I think that we talk a lot about representation, especially in... Um, in media and how important that is and and how there's sort of a burgeoning growth in the amount of LGBT representation and a lot of stuff for young kids. And yet at the same time, Disney as like this giant conglomerate has produced, you know, continues to produce like the most chaste and prurient mainstream movies of all time. I mean, they're like, oh, there's a a lesbian couple in Rise of Skywalker and they kiss in like the eighth, like the smallest corner of the frame you can possibly find as the camera's panning away from them to get it out of it as quickly as possible. In Avengers Endgame, you know, they're like, oh, there's a gay character. It's that guy who's talking about being on a date in the like group counseling session with Captain America. and But like, it's just... It's so funny to watch franchises try to be like, oh, we're going to um, be inclusive of of LGBT characters, but also there we're including them in a world where literally none of the characters fuck. Like the you know the Marvel universe, no one has sex. They can't possibly repopulate the world after Thanos <laughs> does the snap because no one is getting laid. I mean, the superheroes are voluntarily celibate so that they can dedicate themselves to like saving saving the world. So I'm just saying, it, it, it's this double standard, right? Of like, oh, we're including you in the fact that no one in America is allowed to get horny. I feel like we went yeah. onto a, a side road that Isaac's been thinking about for a long time. And, and now he just, he has the platform. It's like, fuck it, I'm doing it. I'm bringing it out. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll say that, I mean, I have a million things to contribute to the idea of Disney and representation. But I mean, what I guess what I think is sort of being... Like they're trying to figure out how they can make money off of queer people, right? And that's gross, but it is like at the same time, like the way you move forward in a in a really unfortunate way. Like if Disney is starting to drop little breadcrumbs for young people that like it might be okay. I don't know. They have like one, I asked this on Twitter one day, and there's like one live action teeny kind of sh- I don't know, TV show with a queer character in it that's like current on Disney, right? And I don't know what it is. <laughs> I assume that person is a gay male. Uh, gay males are the safe part of the community. And they think, okay, well, then they're making some money. And then if they're making money, maybe businesses will be nicer. And then maybe not nicer. Maybe businesses will learn to make more money and that will change the attitude. But it's a really gross capitalism cycle. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, I've, I've mentioned this on on the pod before and and I have Nora's, you know, approval. I, I kind of want to get Nora to come in and have this conversation about Disney because she grew up in her process of coming out was also kind of a lot of this stuff was also happening. And so it's kind of been like a little bit lockstep with her own, her own thing. And so, and she's, you know, it's interesting to hear her talk about stuff like the Star Wars thing where it kind of almost just gets like, She's like, I don't even need that. 
And, and it might be because of where she is and who she is that she doesn't need that. But it's always interesting to have those conversations. But I still think it's actually important to her even to see it in the corner there that it, that it normalizes it just enough for her that I, I, I don't know. I wish she was not. Uh, she's really behind on homework. I'm outing her uh, on here so she can't come in and be on the pod. But I, I, I wonder if that's I mean, I, I think that you're on to something with that, L about those incremental changes, like even if they're frustrating that maybe they do, they still help. I don't know. Carrie, do you have thoughts on that? I don't know that I have a ton of coherent thoughts. I think, well, I'm closer, close-ish in age, in in cohort, cohort-wise to your daughter. And I mean, like, I, I just remember there, from my context, there being a lot of controversy around, uh-oh, this, this media thing has a gay character in it. And so Christians are going to boycott it. Uh, but maybe it's a good thing that there's a gay character. I just remember there used to be way more controversy about it. Now it's generally held as a good thing uh, that there's a gay character. And that seems like, I don't know, progress. I don't love rainbow capitalism. Like, but I did go see Love, Simon like twice in theaters. I'm not going to watch The Prom because you can't pay me to watch James Corden, but I'm glad it exists. I don't know. It's just like... It's an exhausting conversation to me. <laughs> yeah, I feel that. I, I hear it. I just think that, you know, before we started recording, Buffy the Vampire Slayer got mentioned. And that's a show that actually does feature like main characters in yep. uh, an LGBT relationship and also them having sex. And that was on the WB in the 90s. Um, so I think, you know... What I find interesting about Buffy is that like it was this like, I mean, like every queer person queer girl anyone who has watched Buffy because there's lesbians in it but it took them like four seasons to get there and it was like this huge deal um and then like it didn't really happen again <laughs> like in in, in media <laughs> for like a an, I mean a, another I don't know I'm really I don't know that much about tv I guess it was years right until there was another like actual lesbian couple that had that had sex or like was not on a a network show that could show sex, basically. I mean, part of it, I don't remember if it was before or after Buffy, but, well, you know, one of the big kind of touchstone moments and people were freaking out was, you know, Ellen on Ellen's show having having a, uh, the kiss, as they as they called it. And so that was another, there was a, and I'm, I'm showing my age here uh, once again, <laughs> that I'm, I'm in my own. Before. What's that? You mean when she kissed George Bush on TV? That's crazy. <laughs> yes, no, no that's a different kiss. <laughs> uh, but, I, but yeah, okay, never mind. Moving on. <laughs> No, I, I don't know about bu- what happened after Buffy on television, but I know that there is like, I'm a trans parent, right? I've got kids and I'm trans and I know there's certainly nothing for my children to consume in which there are gender non-conforming people, right? Like that does not exist. And we can have this conversation uh, forever. And there are moments in time, you know, where you can find representation and mainstream entertainment, right? I mean, there's always like independent film and, you know, there's queerness everywhere when you, when you get outside of what is considered the sort of mainstream of entertainment, but there is nowhere where there aren't, there are children of non-petsist parents for kids to see. And that's my beef, you know, it would be very nice. Ella, if we could, um, I'd love to ask, you know, your book is addressed specifically to teens. You already mentioned that for yourself, you were 35 years old when 
when you came out. And I wonder if, uh, you know, what you would say to folks who think that when, if they're your age or younger or even older, that it's too late for them. What, you know, how, how had, how did your experience of coming out in, in your mid thirties sort of shape your perspective on that? And, uh, for folks who may be listening, who worry about something like that? Yeah, that's a fascinating and interesting question. I, have you got an idea? Does anybody watch Big Mouth? Yes. Okay. So there's a scene, there's the story in Big Mouth. One of the, one of the children's mothers comes out and there's a song called life is a fucked up mess. And in it, she has a line that says sexual awakening without tearing lives apart. Right. And like, I feel now, you know, I'm several years into the other side of coming out, but, but I, I can't lie that like, it certainly wasn't easy. You know, it was depression that eventually forced it. It was difficult. It was a difficult year and I ended up getting divorced and, you know, I mean, things got difficult for me and I was able to try to think of like, without giving too many details about my private life, right? Like, like I came out at 35 when I could know I like, I was happy married. I was happy pre-transition. I had a good life but there was just like a essentially a wall and once i hit it like things pretty much fell apart until i got over it and now i'm on the other side and i think the idea that i would not have done that like really breaks my heart and i think that 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 that's the thing that needs to be you know reckoned with is not like what what has to be done to get there but like how am i going to live when i've accomplished this uh, because like, I wouldn't give anything, right? I think being trans is 100% better than not being trans. My apologies to everyone who is not trans, but like, that's how I feel. Like, it's unbelievable. It's an unbelievable science fiction almost experience of like, uh, you know, take going on the hormone replacement theory therapy and then feeling yourself change genders. I wish I could explain to people like how, absolutely bonkers of a human experience that is and how worth it it is to go through but but i can't so i just tell people like you know i've talked to some people who have started coming out or who have you know recognize that they have coming out to do at some point and it's like all you can do is either do it and like release yourself from that and like exist authentically in the world or like don't do it. Like, and you can just choose it, especially when you're, you know, coming out well into adulthood. I think, you know, the way you express that, the, I'm trying to think of what the right word is. Passion doesn't really um, cover it, but the way you just express that comes through in the books. And I think that is one of the reasons why I think they're so important is that ability to, to have that kind of, articulation of of why it's so wonderful you know uh for you your personal experience comes through in the pages trying to translate that for the kids who might be reading this and i think that is i don't really have a point to make other than just to acknowledge it that i you know hearing you talk about it uh ellen and i have known each other for six seven years now something like that and that that's really the first time that i've heard you articulate it in that way and it, it it's it's very 
uh, it got me emotional because I, I, having read the book and having known you, it's like, oh, okay, I see this. And being able to transfer that into the lives of teenagers as somebody that works with a ton of teenagers and has, you know, a gay teen in my house is, is it's awesome. Like, that's the kind of stuff that when I think about the church, that's what I want the church to be. And if the church can't be that, I'm glad that we have this kind of stuff. Also, Nora, mm-hmm. oh, sorry. Nora. Uh, I was just going to say, like, one of the things that I think is super important for churches to learn is like, like, I've had several mothers, always mothers, come up and tell me about their kid who is LGBTQ. And I always congratulate them, right? The answer to I have a trans kid is congratulations. The answer to my kid told me that she's gay is congratulations. Like, you, you that, like, this is the best. Your kid is the best. Perfect. Everything, right? Like, they, and sometimes they get, like, surprised, right? They don't expect you to be like, this is great, great news for you, you know? But that's, like, the hurdle. We need, we need to get, the, the thing the church needs to do is get past the apologetics. Like, there's no more talking about that. Like, we just start from this fact, it is okay. Yep. And then we can move forward. Yep. The, yeah, 100%. I was actually thinking about that earlier today for completely unrelated reasons um, because I've been watching Supernatural. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I I just like, I am a person who came out as an adult. I mean, as a young adult, I was like 22, but I had to do all of the apologetics first. I had to, I mean, I started in college. I had to read all the books and do all the theology. I read the Bible in entirety twice, like I, I had to get the arguments right before I could accept gay people and trans people as acceptable in the eyes of God. And now that I did that and accepted myself and have come out in different ways multiple times, it's like exactly like you said, it's like, like this is, my life is so much more joyful now and I don't really care about arguing about it. I like, I think that I can still do all the arguments and I can like talk about the clobber verses or whatever, but it's also like, I don't give a shit. Like my, this, like my life is joyful. And if you can't see that that is a fruit of the Lord's work in my life, then like, I don't care. I just, I don't care. (laughs) Anyway, I'm affirming that. Sorry. That was, that was the point. (laughs) That was good. I uh, completely agree. And I just want to tack on to this uh, uh, resource that might be, useful or helpful for folks. Lynn Tonstad, who is a queer theologian at Yale, wrote a sort of introductory guide to queer theology last year that's just called Queer Theology Beyond Apologetics. And her entire argument is that, you know, most people assume that the whole conversation around queer theology is apologetics. And basically her whole point in the book is just to say, That's not the reason why, you know, the Bible, these five verses, these six verses are not the reason why people are opposing this stuff. I mean, I I know it's important work, but, uh, you know, the the people who are fighting the fight from the doing the work of apologetics and and I appreciate their efforts. um, But but for me and the place I am, I think the clobber verses, the way they are read by bigots, those are my favorite Bible verses. My favorite Bible verses are these Old Testament verses that are like, hey, there are queer people. Right, we've been trying to legislate against them for thousands of years because we don't like them. And to me, that's all the evidence. Like all that is is evidence that like we've. It's not like this is a fade or bad. It's not like this is a fad. All this bullshit that we hear about what it's like to be queer. It's like no, you guys were doing the same garbage five thousand years ago because our family was there pushing up against the stupid walls of your culture. 
Well, I, El, I do kind of want to go a little deeper into the, um, into the comments you made about the church, not like specifically testing you on them, but just to ask some questions that have been percolating for me during the pandemic about gathering and community, if that's okay with you. Of course, I'd love to. I do wonder, I, I feel like the, and maybe all of this is happening because we're recording this on inauguration day and, and I feel like my timeline is swamped by people just like celebrating the shit out of America and completely obliterating all of the lessons of the last four years and, and the Black Lives Matter movement over the summer and I'm just bitter about it. But, you know, think I think there is this tension, right, in, in American culture right now that we want these institutions that have never been, that have always been sort of tied to uh, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant racist identity, that we want to make them inclusive of these other things without fundamentally changing the structure of what they are. You know, the we want the government to be this force for justice, but we're not going to change any of the laws. And in fact, we're going to elect the people who wrote the laws that have made all this shit bad. And, and but suddenly now they're the saviors. And I, I guess I'm wondering with the pandemic, I think the like very identity of church has been challenged in a lot of ways. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that a lot of mainline Protestants who listen to this show are like, okay, this we've, we've been a part of this like homophobic church forever, but now it's becoming more inclusive. And yet, I don't know. I guess, I guess the, the question, how do we pull on that tension into uh, really allowing our commitments to tearing down um, homophobic practices in the church and making space for queer people to also change the, the nature of what church even means and looks like in, um, in a way that doesn't just make space for queer people, but is led by them. I, I'm just, some of the things I've been chewing on during all of this, if any of that makes sense. Yeah, so the question is, how do I fix church? Okay. Yeah. I don't know it's, if the it's whole, how do the you... Institution. Well, if you, if, you, if you do that, we're going to put this one behind a paywall. So we'll, uh, we'll start monetize <laughs> no, this I'm, finally. I'm sorry, Isaac. I'm just, I'm just teasing. <laughs> and I do think that the pandemic has created a very... You know, and I work as a journalist and I did an interview with um, somebody who... I did a piece that was about technology and church during the pandemic. And I think that everybody is trying to explore what happens after this is done. Like, what have we learned? Like, that was the point of this. What have we learned and how can we change what it means to church? Uh, some people you, you use that as a verb. But I think, you know, I think in general, for me, I so I worked on a documentary called White Savior, Racism in the American Church. And in that documentary, there is a statistic that we found about Segregation, you know, you know, the famous Martin Luther King quote, not to be a white person quoting King on a podcast, but about <laughs> We're just days away. Sunday morning being the uh, most segregated hour in, in America, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's still true, overwhelmingly true. Church is a place that is more segregated, I think, than any any space in the U.S. And there is a poll and the poll shows something like and you can watch watch the documentary on amazon prime if you want to correct me but something like 70 percent of people in american churches don't want their church to be more diverse right they like their church because it is not a place where there is difference um that is the benefit of their church and this is not about this is across the demographics right 
black churches are primarily comprised of black Americans who don't want white parishioners to join them and vice versa. Uh, and I think that there is something about an institution that now this is like, so this is where it gets so much more complicated than we can possibly digest on a podcast. But I just think the inclination for queerness to somehow thrive inside of the institution where not only is it already set as a segregated place, but as one where people don't go for difference, they go not to experience difference, mm-hmm. is not necessarily a place that I think queers should find their community. Now, there are queer churches, right? There are places where that's being done and being done beautifully. Emily, Emmy Kegler has a great queer faith community in, in Minnesota. And if I was still a church-going woman, I would be at her church. But for the most part, that's, that is the way in which when I think about how church functions institutionally, I think of it as a place where difference is specifically unwelcome. And that how do you fix that? I mean, I don't, I don't know. You have to take it apart. And it's the same with, if you want to talk about the government or the inaugural, right? Like there's no space in our government. I mean, there's a very little space in our government for like queer as a representative identity to flourish. It's not how it was made. And unless you make it that way, you have to take it apart. Yeah. And I, and I think that that's the, the tension that, that kind of keeps me up at night and because it it's like, okay, well, here are all these giant things that we're all wrapped up in. In some ways we can't escape them. You know, we are are sort of born into the moment that we're born into. And yet it seems to me that I don't know. I mean, I just like we're in this moment of asking if these institutions that have been built up for one purpose can suddenly take on a completely different purpose that's also antithetical to the purpose that they were created for. And it seems the answer is fundamentally no. I mean, to, just to, for one last example, and then I'll pass it on to someone else. You know, uh, I went to Duke Divinity School while I was there, this development administrator named Talman Trask the third, who sounds like, you know, a slave owner and a villain and in the Iron Man movies. Um, he hit a black woman who's a, a parking attendant for a Duke football game and called her the N-word. There was a major um protest about it at the time. Students shut down, like occupied an administrative building for for a week. It was like a huge huge blow up. And then last month in my mailbox, I got the alumni magazine and the cover was a tribute to Talman Trask III, the legacy of Talman Trask III all over the cover. And then up in the top right-hand corner, it said it was featuring the headline of an article in the magazine, Can Duke Become Anti-Racist? And so it's just like, (laughs) you know, here's this, uh, here's a microcosm of exactly the the difficulty that we're we're thinking about and yet yeah so i i guess uh it's fascinating to me it's almost like okay well i i i guess what is on the other side of of these institutions and and how do we tear them down and make something else i i think that part of the fear for a lot of folks is that the entire house would come down collapsing with it and and i guess i'm at a, a point where i'm like yeah that's exactly what I want to see happen. I, that's what I'm interested. I want to see what's on the other side of the rubble. <laughs> yeah. But I, I would have passed that off to Brian or Carrie to, to jump in with this. As a person in the ordination process, I'm going to pass that on to Carrie. 
<laughs> no, I, I'm happy to answer. That's not fair. <laughs> I, 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 well, I, I go back and forth. Like I, I, and again, this is coming from the only, you know, straight person on this podcast at the moment, being able to say that, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to believe in reclaiming the church, but, but it's because Elle, as you mentioned, that's a place where I don't have to, I don't have to fight for anything in that, right? Anything. So I, I, so part of me wants that, but the other side of it too, like if we're going to talk like theologically about it as well, is like, we shouldn't be afraid of it falling apart. I mean, our damn theology is based on resurrection, so it's like if, if, if the church is, is going to fall apart, I, that's not the end of the church. I, I, I have a lot of problems with the church's dying language, but that's not a, for this podcast. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I, fine. Like, okay, just, it's just, you know, that, a lot of that's propagated by, now I'm really going to get into my, uh, into my uh, feelings here, is that it's propagated by like, like clergy who don't know what they're going to do if the church fails. They don't, they don't have another job. They don't have a pod farm to work on, Isaac. So they need to figure out what they're going to be doing. They don't know what they're doing next. So it becomes easier for them just to get up into the pulpit and preach the same old, same old every single week and never have to kind of move it forward. So I don't know. This is inauguration day, right? Like, right. what do you think that, what we, we have created an entire market for fascist media who are now going to have to figure out how to sell their wares, right? I mean, this is, that's the exact metaphor, I think, for, for how the church has sort of, it keeps, in my opinion, white American Christianity keeps building on top of itself, right? And so it's like, you can't dismantle it and get back to this fundamental thing that everyone's cool with, which is Jesus, right? Because like, you've built all these appendages onto it. And now it's like, what, well, we, we can't change anything. Otherwise the whole car, all cards fall. And it's not just the fascist media too. It's also, we've talked about this on the podcast, but it's also all of these never Trump progressive types who like, I'm really fascinated by them. Like, how are they going to transition into being relevant when they don't have the foil of Trump to kind of talk about? Are they just going to kind of fall in line to a tepid, you know, Joe Biden type of administration or, or what happens? That's neither here nor there. Carrie, did you have thoughts about the church's demise? <laughs> the rubble of the church. Uh, <laughs> so we we could we transition to Harry Potter, talk about Fox, well, uh, whatever. Uh, oh my goodness. I never have, I never have the thoughts you want me to have. I'm sorry. I, I, as, I mean, just as I was listening, I mean, like, I think I, I'm a person who does love church. I, and, and also like, I love Jesus. Um, the two, two things in my life that I think that are not people, right. That are not like physical people, uh, the two things I love the most are Jesus and, and, and the idea of queerness, like the concept of queerness. Uh, being gay is the only thing I was willing to risk my salvation over. <laughs> like, and I legitimately thought I was going to hell for a really long time. And that's really beautiful and powerful. Yeah. yeah and, and, that's and, a, that is a really beautiful statement. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about the church and all of the harm that the church has done to queer people and to people of color of every stripe um, that the institutional American church has done, I don't know if it's redeemable. And yet I also, I still have this deep love of Jesus that I don't, even when I don't want it to be there, it's there. And so I don't know what the future of the church is. And I don't know that I have a lot of thoughts on it except that I, I want it to exist, but I want it to exist in the kind of queer radical future where it's not in conflict to have, to have Jesus and to have like a strange, large gay family that doesn't conform to the American standard. 
of heteronormativity. Like I just, and I don't know how we get there and I don't know if we can, but I would like to try. Another, uh, like writer thing, um, writer recommendation as uh, Marcella uh, Althus Reed, who wrote uh, The Queer God and I can't remember the name of her other book. But anyway, and she she goes into a lot of this kind of stuff. I know we've, we've talked here about queering X or queering Y uh, on the podcast in the past, but she really, she talks, Carrie, like what you're talking about. She really uh, kind of dives into that. Uh, Indecent Theologies, that's the name of her other, of her other book. Uh, worth checking out. I have a friend who's in New York City, the big city. Ross, he works for GLAD, and he is gay and a deacon in the ELCA church. And he he very often talks about coming out to his queer friends that he is a Christian, right? Like there is a real, like everything that, you know, we've been talking about my experience, but also Gary's and others that it goes the other, there's just like a lot of, if you are going to figure out a way for queerness as a, as a concept and identity and, um, you know, magic power to re-enter the space of institutional church. Like you've got to fix church, but you've got to, there's it's also incumbent on the church to fix what that real, how that relationship feels, right? Like it's not only, it's not enough to, and this is what confronting sexual shame was about the documentary, right? Like not only recognizing what has been done and trying to figure out how to do better, but then, repairing something that you have done, right? And taking ownership of something that has been done. And I think people like Ross who are, who are, and I'm, you know, joy at your church, Brian, and I'm sure, you know, millions of people are doing that work. Um, but it can't just be those queers who are in there doing it. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I saw a survey recently that was polling queer people in the Southeast and about faith and, uh, um, you know, two thirds to three quarters of them in my state, Tennessee, responded that they identified as being LGBT and Christian. And so I, I think that one of the big misnomers down here in a lot of the discussion in the United Methodist Church is that there just aren't queer people in our churches in the South. And that's just not true. I mean, it's just not even close to true. And and so the people who are who have been sort of faithfully sojourning through this. I don't mean to sort of erase any of that at all because I think it takes a tremendous amount of courage and of faith that it, that risks so much more than I think the the cishet couple that they sit next to in the pew. But yeah, I, I think that, you know, Carrie, what you said is really beautiful and moving and it's brave of you also to come out as a Gnostic on the podcast. You said the uh, two things who are not physical beings, Jesus and queerness. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> let's not get, don't call me a Gnostic again. What am I? I'm Jesus. I love that again. I like how it's just come up already. <laughs> you know, I've gotten called Gnostic multiple times by like people I went to college with. It's like, you're not using that term correctly. Uh, just say it, Jesus, you know, either still resurrected or not. Anyway, I'm just, I'm teasing you. Uh, I just, I just meant other people, you, you know, I love my brother very much. He's not a concept. He's my brother. <laughs> oh gosh. Um, uh, Elle, just w- one follow-up on that. Cause I, I think that what Carrie said though, speaks directly to the work that you've done and which is that, you know, queer people, um, telling their stories. And, and so I, I guess I'm wondering how, you know, you've, you've written multiple books, you've produced documentaries, like 
Do you have any encouragement for people who are trying to get into storytelling in that same way? How can they do what you've done or how can they do their own thing? What are they, what are the common things that they need or practices to do? Oh, that's a tough one. I think, I mean, you know, Brian, when somebody asks you, what do you say? You know, I mean, you power through the difficulty, you know, and if you want to do it, you find a way to figure it out and you remain, I mean, this is, the corniest of language, but it's like you remain humble and you accept the limits of your, your space and time and, you know, find a way to work, move forward. I I mean, I would add to that. And, uh, you know, I, I usually say like, if I'm talking to teenagers or, I mean, sorry, adults, I usually say, you know, you, there's a certain amount of arrogance involved in this that you have to think that you have something to say. But like in this conversation, how I would reframe that to say is that you have to see the value in, in, in your voice, right? Like that there is value in what you have to say that the world uh, needs to hear. And like, let that drive you. Don't worry about the publishing side of things. The act of creation and kind of finding your voice, I think, really fits into this whole conversation. There's an idea behind that of just being like, you know what? I don't care what other people think. I have to tell this story. And just having that kind of sheer audacity of sitting down every day and doing that is a lot of what writing for me is about. But then again, I'm like, again, I'm like this arrogant, straight white dude. So I, I can say that and it maybe rings a little differently. Uh, Carrie, you write too. I mean, do you do you have thoughts? How do you how do you sit down in the chair, I guess, and, and get ready to put something out there? <laughs> well, I haven't for the entire pandemic because uh, my brain doesn't work anymore. Oh, uh, well. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that like arrogance is a good word for it. It really is, but... <laughs> yeah, I mean, also, I think, I don't know... Oh, maybe you feel this too. Like, I just, whenever I'm writing about gay shit, I'm like, it's almost a fuck you. <laughs> like, not gay isn't happy, but queer isn't fuck you. I'm like, I'm going to write this. I'm going to write an essay about how reading Marilyn Robinson made me realize that I wanted to have gay sex. And that's just the way it's going to be. Because I know all these evangelical Christians love Marilyn Robinson, but guess what? Um, like my dyke ass loves her too. And so I don't, it's just like a, I don't always feel that confident, but when I'm sitting down to write, that's what I have to tell my, that's like what I have to hide myself up with. Otherwise it's not going to go well. Yeah. I mean, know your audience, right? Like I think about that a lot. I, I, I could remain committed to the idea that like closeted evangelical 15-year-old, 16-year-old, I guess, me is the audience, right? And it's like, I want to be as fucking radical a person as I can for that girl who also exists in a million other people right now, you know, this moment who are are maybe thinking about telling their parents something they haven't quite figured out and are terrified to fucking death. And then I think, okay, well, I can do that. And I, I've given I've given the YA uh, Twitter. I've, I've mentioned before how scared I am of them at times. But this is one thing that YA does really well. I think YA desperately cares about representation, um, and I think they desperately care about that kid that you're talking about, L. Uh, about that they're going to find themselves in a book that is written by somebody that shares that experience and is a part of that community. So props to the props to the YA community. Don't come don't come at me. Don't cancel me. 
And side note, if anyone wants to publish my gay Marilyn Robinson essay, oh. it's not very sexy, but it is my sexiest essay. There it is. And also, side side note, uh, I don't know if you're if you're even working on your your YA novel anymore. Um, but one of one of the one of the YA novels I've I've read a lot of people's works in progress uh, in the past, and most of them are very forgettable. A shot fired. But anyway, but this is the uh, Elle's, yeah, damn. I know. <laughs> Sorry, but Elle's is one that like I I still think about it like regularly, like at least once a week. Right? Something floats up from this idea of a, oh. uh, so, so uh, if that, there, that's very moving to me. And I will say, I try, I shopped a, a YA novel that I wrote while I was coming out and it is, um, I am not working on it. No. So I can share that it is basically a, the setting is a church lock-in and the plot is the pastor kills all the children. Yes. Uh, and that's freaking incredible. <laughs> I was told, I was told by many, you know, not many, a handful of agents that like, there's no audience for this. And I think back <laughs> and I'm like, that's probably true. You know, it's fine. But well, the only kid who lives is the trans kid, you know, who, who figures it out. But the final girl. Yeah. yeah. And, and the, the youth pastor turns into like a demon monster type. It's actually a monster. Yeah. yeah so it's a really, it's really good. alien, only it's a human pastor, youth pastor vibe. Yeah. Very pastor skill. <laughs> It's it's yeah. it's amazing. I literally think about it all the time. I'm not even lying. So agents and editors out there following, uh, uh, hit L up. <laughs> not yeah. agents and editors. They're Darren Aronofsky, the director yeah, of Mother. <laughs> Anybody who, who wants to make that it, movie, <laughs> it's available. <laughs> Perfect. Bargain bargain prices at this point. I'm I'm uh, <laughs> I've moved on from that one. But. Yeah. Well, you know, I, we're getting close on on time. One thing that I really I, I, I wanted to end with, which I, I the is probably my favorite part of the book. I think is the last chapter, and I'm just going to read the section heading. I just wonder if we can you want to speak about that? As we've reached the end, give me the representation representation I need, and tell me what a queer future looks like. I love that because when you read through all of those, just in that in that little section right there, there is there's that that hope, I think, that we've been kind of circling, you've spoken to a little bit, that idea that it, you know, the ch- previous chapters, it, it, does it get better? And then it ends with this idea of, show me what this looks like. And I just think that opening up a teenager's life to the, to the thing that they don't have to hide and they don't have to be um, afraid of kind of experiencing joy, love, and happiness is such a wonderful thing that Christian theology in, in the church has not done a very good job at. So I, I don't know if you want to speak to that to end it or anything that you want to end on, but I, I just wanted to say that I, you know, it's just such a great way to end the, to end the book. Well, thank you very much. And, and thank you all for the invitation and getting a chance to talk about this. And and I guess like when I think about the queer representation, you know, queer future, the future is queer, all of this sort of like the space that, you know, our community, um, and I don't know, Carrie, if you feel this, but I certainly do like, I just feel like so much momentum and power in queerness, you know, right. Even though there is like a million things that <laughs> give me anxiety and we're up against and you know i think we're going to be trans rights are going to be in for a long few, few years here blah 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 right like inside of what's happening inside of the community is just continually uplifting to me and and i don't i've said in other interviews i've done about the book like i'm not invested at all in whether young people are or are not christian i'm invested in whether or not they're a bit they're able to like fully live an authentic life, right? And you can do that in churches and you can do that by leaving your church and you have to make choices. And as long as people are able to choose for themselves a life 
that includes authenticity and not conversion therapy or shame. Yeah, that's that's the future. That's the, that I hope is the future. Well, I randomly, I I just decided that we were ending the podcast. <laughs> Gary and Isaac, feel free to chime in if there's anything else you want to bring up. I just ended it for us. So sorry about that. I, I Al, I think that that's, that's beautifully put. And, and it challenges me a little because I think a lot of the questions, like even the question I tried to ask you earlier about like, that always comes out as kind of like how to fix the church. I, I think the question is more like, there's a, de- there's a different type of community out there that I, I only really ever found in queer, queer radical spaces that where existing in a certain way and especially in a queer way doesn't have to be also synonymous with like transgressing the rules of the community that you're in. And I think that that's the, the tension that builds up for, for me within the idea that institutions where queerness is always going to be a type of transgression because it's not a part of the structure, the power structure in that institution that I guess that there's, to me, I, what I hope for the future is that there are just more people out there creating communities where that isn't, where like, I, I don't know, this is like, Still this is a tough letters. space. This is a tough space you're talking about, right? Because yeah, yeah. How do we want to, like, while I want to build communities, I'm sorry if I totally interrupted you. I want to build oh, communities God. where being queer is a safe space and where you can let your guard down and you don't have to feel like the transgressor. But I also want queer as in fuck you, you know? Yeah, like yeah. the Kathy Acker theory of queer theory, which is like, we do not want your acceptance. We want yeah. nothing to do with you. You know, we don't want normative homosexuals. We want to be ourselves and we don't give a fuck about acceptance from you. Uh, so I like, and I like that part of it too, you know, when it doesn't make me feel unsafe, but so it is, it is like, these are just incredibly complicated community questions about what it means to feel like you're living the life you want to live. And that like, there's no idea. There's just like every other human demographic, everybody thinks differently about how that social interaction should look. So anyways. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that it's just uh, a friend of mine, ref smash shout out. You know, she told me recently, it's like living, being who you truly are is the hardest thing to do in life, you know, and the easiest thing to do is to shut that out. And uh, I think that that's why the answer to these questions is so difficult because yeah, you want all of the complexity of life on your terms. And I hope that, uh, I hope that everybody can find it, especially queer kids in the South. Shout out to all of you. So, yeah. Well, thanks Al for, for coming on. Uh, Is there anything you want to, you want to pitch real quick before we, we head out? No. You can find me on Twitter at Lee Finky, L-E-I-G-H Finky, and uh, totallygayproductions.com. You should hire me, obviously. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. I could sit and do this all day. Awesome. Thanks, Al. Yeah, it's been great. 